Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. In uh, his book, The Supper of the Lamb, Robert Farrah Capon wrote that food is the daily sacrament of unnecessary goodness, ordained for a continual remembrance that the world will always be more delicious than useful. More delicious than useful. My brother Stephen's 20th birthday fell during our family vacation to Italy. We were in Venice, and because it was his birthday, he got to choose how we would celebrate. And so he decided that we would get on the train and travel from Venice, this beautiful city, to Verona because he wanted to celebrate at the nearest McDonald's. Yeah, and, and I, I'm sorry to report that that wasn't such an unusual culinary experience for our trip to Italy. The waiters at all of the restaurants in Venice, they sized us up as they saw us coming down the streets or, or down the alleys, and uh, they would kind of look at us and say, oh, you want some American champagne? You want some American champagne? Uh, which is what they call Coke. And, uh, and we were like, yes, yes, we do. Uh, everywhere we went, we kind of exemplified the stereotypes of the ugly American. You know, we wanted our food. We wanted our drinks. Uh, it's, it's terrible to contemplate that that's how we traveled through Italy. But the year before my brother was born, Dr. Hal Kushner boarded a plane and traveled back to the United States after five and a half years as a prisoner of war in Vietnam. In his first prison, he had survived on rice that had been stored for 15 years and contained rat feces, rocks, and weevils, he reported. When they upgraded his accommodation to the Hanoi Hilton, he received pumpkin soup, hog water, and a piece of bread twice a day which he estimated to be about 600 calories a day, and that's what he subsisted on. When he boarded the plane, finally, to travel home, the nurses on the plane asked, what do you want? You can have whatever you want. And he said, I want a Coke with crushed ice and some chewing gum. The first story is easy to laugh at. You know, the Americans asking for Coke when they should be enjoying the exquisite offerings of a foreign land. But the second one resonates. We can sympathize with Dr. Kushner's desire to have a Coke with crushed ice and some chewing gum after all that he had been through, subsisting on rice and bread and hog water, whatever that is. Imagine what it would have been like after five and a half years of that to taste some nice, cool American champagne. It must have been wonderful. He wasn't home yet, but in that moment he could taste home. He could taste home. Food is the daily sacrament of unnecessary goodness ordained for a continual remembrance that the world will always be more delicious than useful. The story of the prodigal son, the story of the lost son, 
is a story about food and a story about longing. The prodigal son wastes all of his wealth until he finds himself humbled and humiliated. He's starving so much so that he envies the pigs for their diet. And that's when he comes to himself. In modern terms, we would say he'd hit rock bottom and he experienced a moment of clarity. To listen to the story as Jesus narrates it. This is in Luke 15, beginning in verse 11. There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. He divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. It's a story, the way Jesus narrates it, it's a story full of longing. The son's longing for happiness is what leads him to ruin. He has a desire that we can relate to, not to wait for his inheritance, but to enjoy it now. He takes what is rightfully his, given to him by the father. He goes to a far country and instead of finding prosperity there and happiness, he squanders his property. He lives, Jesus says, recklessly, which is the way Jesus describes the pursuit of happiness. What this young man did was not extraordinarily wicked, unusual. It wasn't such a strange thing that we just can't relate to it. Jesus isn't telling us the story of a, a kid who did something absolutely beyond the pale that the father never could have anticipated when he gave his son all of this money and, and let him go on his way. It's actually not that surprising that this is the way it worked out. It works out this way a lot when we're given the opportunity to indulge in what we want, when we are allowed to pursue happiness the prodigal son is a lot like the preacher in Ecclesiastes who denied himself nothing in the pursuit of happiness. The way it's described in Ecclesiastes 2 is this, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. 
I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. The prodigal son didn't need to go to a far country to learn this lesson. He could have learned it from Ecclesiastes. He could have seen where the pursuit of happiness leads. To put it another way, psychiatrist Barry Schwartz says, happiness as a goal is a recipe for disaster. Happiness as a goal is a recipe for disaster. You see it exemplified here. The pursuit of happiness, ironically, prevents the realization of happiness. This young man takes the money entrusted to him, and he uses it the way most of us would use it, given the opportunity, given the absence of accountability. He does what a lot of people do, and he discovers what a lot of us discover when we pursue that path, that it leads to vanity, meaninglessness, suffering. And it leads to a change in longing as well. The son's longing for happiness, his longing for the fulfillment of his desires leads him to ruin, and then his longings change. Not necessarily for the better. The son's longing for pig's food leads to clarity. The first longing you have to discern in the text, you have to kind of read into the story a little bit, but not the second. Jesus actually uses these words to describe the young man's desire He says he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. A lot of times when you you read the text, the way that you read it is uh, he he didn't have any food, and so he had us a job feeding the pigs, and so he just kind of helps himself to the pig fodder uh, because, I mean, there's nothing else available, and he just sort of grins and bears it, and uh, it's not tasty, but he's got to survive. But, but that doesn't really do justice to Jesus' words. He's not saying he grinned and bared it. He's not saying that uh, he had to put up with it. He, he says he longed to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. There was a desire of the heart that was fixed on the food that sustained the pigs. He wished, he longed to taste those pods on his lips. That's how humbled he was. That's how far he'd fallen. It's not an accident that Jesus speaks of this change in desire this way. That this young man who who longed for so much now finds himself longing for something that, that he would have despised before. Once he'd longed for happiness, now he longs for pig's food. That's how far he's come. And it's that longing that leads to his moment of clarity. Things have gotten as bad as they can get. He's lost everything. And and that longing is what seems to lead him to the realization where Jesus says he came to himself. He came to himself. And when he comes to himself, the realization hinges on eating. He says, When he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. As he longs for this pig fodder, 
He remembers that the people who used to wait on him, the people who used to serve at his father's table, they ate better than this. He longs to be included in a meal that before he would have been too proud to join in, to eat with the servants. That would have been to lower himself. Now, now he realizes that a servant in my father's house fares better than I do now. And then he goes. He has that moment of clarity and he goes. A new longing stirs. It's a longing for home. It's a longing for the bread that was broken at the table of the servants of his father. And that longing fills him and he acts on that longing. He dreams of sharing bread with his father's servants. That longing leads to restoration. That longing leads to restoration. When he's reached the bottom, when he's come to himself, a longing inside to join his father's servants, to share the bread at their table leads to restoration. It leads him home. But when he gets there, the father gives him more than he dreamed of. The father isn't content to let him join the servants and to break bread with them, to be one of them. He interrupts his son, who has rehearsed his speech of repentance. The father intervenes and gives him more than he dreamed of. No, you won't eat the bread of my servants. You'll feast on a fattened calf. You will wear this ring, this robe, these shoes. The father clothes him, and he feasts with him. He celebrates with him. Because the son who was dead now lives. Because the son who was dead now lives, the father glorifies him. He gives him all things. He dresses him gloriously. And the servants he longed to dine with wait upon him at the feast. Because he was dead. And now he lives Now he eats with faith. Eating with faith means eating with longing. Eating with faith means eating with longing. This is the story of faith. Make no mistake. The prodigal son's story, the story of this lost son is a story of faith. But what is faith? If you look as some of us will be doing in great depth this afternoon at the Westminster Confession. You find in the chapter on justification that faith is the alone instrument of justification. Faith is never alone. Faith is always accompanied by works, but it is faith alone. And that faith alone is the alone means by which we are justified. Faith, the confession acknowledges And its chapter on saving faith varies in degrees, weak and strong. Some of us are strong in faith. Some of us are weak in faith. And that's to be expected. That's normal. That's the way it works. Faith leads a Christian to believe to be whatever is revealed in the word is true. It leads us to yield obedience to the commands in Scripture, to tremble at the threatenings, to embrace the promises of God for this life 
and that which is to come. But the confession says the principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. That sounds really weighty and complicated, and it is. But a way to get a handle on all of that is to think of it this way. Faith is longing. Faith is longing. Jesus tells a story of faith, but he doesn't give us a technical description of faith. He doesn't give us a theological description of faith. He gives us an experiential, an emotional description of faith. Faith is longing. It is longing. How does longing express faith? Well, the lost son is humble. He's conscious of having sinned against his father, and yet he still trusts in the father to feed him. Despite everything that he's done, despite the wealth that he's squandered, the good name that he has brought low, the transgressions that have brought shame upon him and upon his house, despite being honest about all of that by knowing the consequences of what he's done, he still trusts the father to care for him if he goes home. Not every prodigal does. There are plenty of us who find ourselves lost, find ourselves having done things, and we feel like we could never go home. We could never return. We would never be accepted. We wouldn't dare. We wouldn't dare go home having done the things we've done. But despite all that he's done, he trusts. Despite the shame that he thinks his father will feel when he sees him, the humiliation his father would have to endure to receive him back even as a servant, he trusts that the Father will do it. He never doubts that the Father will receive him. It's true, he has no idea how well the Father will receive him, how forgiving the Father will be, but he has faith. It's not that he knows his Father so well. He's like, he's such a softy. You, you just can't do anything to alienate this guy. He'll forgive anything. It's not that. He has faith. He just believes that if he goes home, he will find home welcoming. He expects that he can't be fully embraced, but he thinks a place will be found for him. That longing expresses faith. Despite his sin, he longs for home. Despite his sin, he trusts the Father to save him. That's what faith is. That's the kind of trust that faith involves. The longing of faith is built, it's strengthened, it feeds on memory, and it feeds on hope. And that's why I think the connection to food is so interesting here, that the story of, of faith, of loss and restoration for the prodigal son really hinges on dietary considerations. He comes to himself when he sees just how bad the food is that he now longs for, he returns home when he imagines that there will be a table waiting for him. It's all about food. It's all about being sustained. It's all about the taste of home. Taste ties us to memory. It ties us to hope. 
The most ex famous example of this in all of literature has to be in uh, Marcel Proust's novel Swan's Way. There's this passage. Uh, so even people who haven't read the book, which is almost all people, uh, are aware that there's this famous passage uh, about a little cake called a Madeleine. It's a, a, a passage where he describes as an adult being served one of these cakes. He eats it, and the taste of it transports him to childhood. Not, not really that he just has a memory like, oh, yeah, I remember, but like it, it brings him back. It awakens things in him in a way that, that you can relate to. Taste does that. Sometimes you taste something, and it's not just that you're like, oh, yeah, almonds. I remember almond from way back. It's like you're there. You're back at the table where you were as a kid eating something for the first time. Uh, nostalgia doesn't quite do it justice, that feeling. There's another passage, though, in Scripture that I think does it even better. It's from uh, this novel, Marilyn Robinson's book, Gilead. It's the scene where the narrator, John Ames, recalls his father feeding him soot-covered bread. The taste of that bread becomes a sign for him throughout the rest of his life. It's a fascinating passage, and if you'll indulge me, I'd like you to, to experience it, to, to hear at length this tale. He's reminiscing about the past. His father, who was a minister, and he himself is a minister, when he was a kid, his father brought him to this scene where a church had burned down, and uh, he remembers everything that happened as a kid. These, these events take place in Iowa, not too far from where we are now, and uh, you may recognize some of the behaviors of the people in this scene. He says, I remember once when I was a young child, my father helped to pull down a church that had burned. Lightning struck the steeple, and then the steeple fell into the building. It rained the day we came to pull it down. The pulpit was left intact, standing there in the rain, but the pews were mostly kindling. There was a lot of praising the Lord that had happened at midnight on a Tuesday. It was a warm day, a warm rain, and there was no real shelter, so everybody ignored it more or less. All kinds of people came to help. It was like a camp meeting at a picnic. They unhitched the horses, and we younger children lay on an old quilt under the wagon out of the way and talked and played marbles and watched the older boys and the men clamber over the ruins, searching out Bibles and hymnals. They would sing. We would all sing Blessed Jesus and the Old Rugged Cross, and the wind would blow the rain in gusts, and the spray would reach us where we were. It was cooler than the rain was. The rain falling on the wagon bed sounded the way it does in an attic eve. It never rains, but I remember that day. And when they had gathered up all the books that were ruined, they made two graves for them and put the Bibles in one and the hymnals in the other. And then the minister whose church it was, a Baptist, as I recall, said a prayer over them. I was always amazed watching grown-ups at the way they seemed to know what was to be done in any situation, to know what was the decent thing. The women put the pies and cakes they had brought and the books that could still be used into our wagon, and then covered the bed with planks and tarps and lap robes. The food was all pretty damp. No one seems to have thought there might be rain, and harvest was coming, so they'd have been too busy to come back again for a good while. 
They put that pulpit under a tree and covered it with a horse blanket, and they salvaged whatever they could, which amounted mainly to shingles and nails. Then they pulled down everything that was still standing to make a bonfire when it all dried out. The ashes turned liquid in the rain, and the men who were working in the ruins got entirely black and filthy, till you would hardly know one from another. My father brought me some biscuit that had soot on it from his hands. Never mind, he said, there's nothing cleaner than ash. But it affected the taste of that biscuit, which I thought might resemble the bread of affliction, which was often mentioned in those days, though it's rather forgotten now. Strange are the uses of adversity. That's a fact. When I'm up here in my study with the radio on and some old book in my hands and it's nighttime and the wind blows and the house creaks, I forget where I am. And it's as though I'm back in hard times for a minute or two. There's a sweetness in the experience, which I don't understand. But that only enhances the value of it. My point here is that you never do know the actual nature, even of your own experience. Perhaps it has no fixed and certain nature. I remember my father down on his heels in the rain, water dripping from his hat, feeding me biscuit from his scorched hand, with that old blackened wreck of a church behind him in steam rising where the rain fell on embers, the rain falling in gusts, and the women singing the old rugged cross while they saw to things, moving so gently as if they were dancing to the hymn almost. In those days, no grown woman ever let herself be seen with her hair undone. But that day, even the grand old women had their hair falling down their backs like schoolgirls. It was so joyful and sad. I mention it again because it seems to me much of my life was comprehended in that moment. Grief itself has often returned me to that morning when I took communion from my father's hand. I remember it as communion. And I believe that's what it was. Eating with faith means real communion. Eating with faith means real communion. In the same way that the soot-covered bread, covering that pure ash, became for this narrator, for his whole life, this sign of communion, not just with his father, but with his father above. We, too, and we eat with faith, commune with God. The longing that drives us to him. It's a dissatisfaction. You were made for something better than this present alienation. Because of sin, because of the world that we live in, we all bask in alienation from one another, from ourselves, from God, and you live in it long enough and you tell yourself this is the way it's meant to be and the path of wisdom is to accept it, to make light of it, to joke about it. But you were made for something better than this alienation. Faith is a longing for home even though you've never been there. Longing to taste what you've never tasted before a realization that what you're eating now, what this world serves up, couldn't possibly sustain you. We make peace with it. We tell ourselves, if this is what we're being fed, this must be what we were made for. This will nourish us. But this is fodder for pigs. This is old rice full of contaminants. 
this is stuff you would never want to eat if you were in your right mind. You eat what the world serves up only because you haven't come to yourself and you haven't realized that there is a better table. Faith is knowing that the thin gruel this life serves up is not enough to sustain you or nourish you. You're longing for this world. You're longing to be happy, to be content, to make peace with this world, even if it is fulfilled, will get you nowhere. You can taste by faith now the communion that is to come. We long to eat with Jesus. But when you eat with Jesus, necessarily you're forced to eat with sinners. Necessarily, you're forced to eat with joy. Sometimes it feels like joy is thrust upon you. When you eat with Jesus, you're forced to eat without excuses. There's no other way to come to his table. And when you eat with Jesus, you eat with faith. You eat with faith. You eat with longing. In each instance of communion, each instance, each taste of that soot-covered bread, that imperfect thing, reminds us that there is a meal to come that will be better than this, that there is a feast to come. Faith is believing that there is a table set at the end of history and that at that table there is a place for you to sit, not as a servant, but as a daughter, as a son, that's faith. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.